the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Wait, wait, another podcast today? That's correct. The only thing better than a two for Tuesday is a two for Friday. And today's guest is Steve Lemieux, and we are talking about ARDS. And the backbone of our discussion is reviewing the 2023 ESICM ARDS guidelines that were just published. Either this month or last month, I, I can't remember. But I asked Steve to come on uh, from his research and knowledge specifically about corticosteroids in ARDS. So uh, we have a fantastic discussion about that, maybe why they're not in the guidelines, and highlighting some of his articles on this very topic. Now, a great primer for this episode is one of the first episodes on the pod, an interview with Andrea Sakura on ARDS, which is why today's episode is part two. And if you're wondering, if you saw the graphic, right, Steve is from Connecticut, so of course I asked for his pizza recommendation. This is a great episode, so let's get it started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And very lucky to be joined by Stephen Lemieux. Now, Stephen is a critical care clinical pharmacy specialist at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System. You can find him on Twitter at LemieuxPharmD. And you can see when you search PubMed and things for, for corticosteroids in ARDS articles, his name will be over publications that you'll see. We're going to talk about those. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing well. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Now, this is funny. Two of my last three guests are from or working in the Connecticut area. So like I said last time, I have to ask, you're from Connecticut, right? You get to experience that Yale New Haven pizza. So let us know, what is your favorite pizza in the Connecticut area? I would say the white clam pizza from Pepe's for sure. Definitely would be my favorite. I love that. I think that's the first Pepe's recommendation that's one of the fa that's one of like the infamous spots like nationwide that's one of the first times it's it's got the shout out on here now what's white clam so is that literally a white pizza with clams on top is it is is am i interpreting that correctly exactly yep uh cheese olive oil and if you want to make it a little better have them add some bacon to it too that seems like something that would be terrible in Indiana, but amazing in Connecticut. So it feels like one of those when, we're, when you're on the coast, we'll go and get that. But if not, um, I think we'll probably stick to my famous cheese here. But okay, the real reason we are here. So, so ESICM, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, they just released guidelines on ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome published literally this month, July 2023, in Intensive Care Medicine. 
So longtime listeners and friends of the pod, um, you know, Andrea Sikor Newsom joined in one of the early episodes going into a lot of the physiology, pathophys of ARDS, early stages where we are. Now, um, this updated kind of guideline gives us some new, a breath of air into ARDS. So Steve, I kind of want to use when, when listeners, when we were creating our outline for today, we kind of wanted to use these guidelines as an outline, talk about some of the things that they recommend that they change, but then also, right, there are things that they didn't discuss that we're going to dive way into, um, but we'll kind of start with that framework and go from there. So Steve, what was the scope of these ESICM guidelines and how did they go about evaluating the evidence? Because I've had, we've had a lot of examples where it feels like our, um, the scope and intentions of these guidelines have changed from earlier iterations to now in previous disease states. Yeah. So the scope of this clinical practice guideline was limited mainly to non-pharmacologic respiratory support strategies in adult patients with ARDS. Interestingly, though, a lot of what the guidelines delve into, like phenotyping, for example, are really great launching points to talk about pharmacologic therapies like corticosteroids, which we'll get into later on. Uh, Nevertheless, to formulate these guidelines, really what happened was an international panel, panel of experts devised a series of domains within ARDS, which they thought were pertinent and sought to evaluate. And so in the majority of these domains, questions were formulated in PICO format, and then a systematic literature search was done for each PICO question created. And then ultimately the evidence compiled from this lit search was then graded using the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, or grade approach. So in total, nine domains were created by this panel of experts and ultimately evaluated in this guideline update. Yeah, and I, I'm, we're going to come back, I imagine, throughout our discussion talking about that grade methodology, that PICO format, and how that might have changed some of the things. And so they, they found these three chairpersons, right, definition, phenotyping, and respiratory support, and they really kind of tackled those nine different domains. So I think first things first, right, most of us with ARDS, we're very familiar with the Berlin criteria, the Berlin definition. So so how do the, the ESICM, is there an update to our AD, ARDS? Uh, definition? Well, the focus of these guidelines was not so much to draft a new definition of ARDS, but rather to highlight the limitations of the currently used Berlin definition. And there are quite a few areas that they go into, um, one of which was the need for patients to be receiving positive end expiratory pressure of five or more in order to be formally diagnosed with ARDS which means that anybody being managed with things like high-flow nasal oxygen, for example, automatically cannot be diagnosed via the Berlin definition. And this is a problem that was highlighted by these authors, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, when we were faced with ventilator shortages and the use of things like high-flow nasal oxygen really took off. The reality is when we use the Berlin definition, we're probably missing a lot of patients who otherwise would be diagnosed with ARDS had the decision been made to manage them with invasive mechanical ventilation instead. The authors also highlight the limitations of using the PF ratio to determine ARDS severity in the Berlin definition as well, and note that using an SF ratio instead is becoming more popular. Something personal that I want to add, though, to this is whether one uses the PF or SF ratio, another important limitation to this approach is that while being mechanically ventilated, these patients are either going to be managed via a low PEEP, high FiO2, or high PEEP, low FiO2 protocol. And where this complicates things is that you can have two patients who are comparably hypoxemic, but if you choose to utilize the low PEEP, high FiO2, protocol in one patient and the high peak low FiO2 protocol in the other, then ARDS severity will look worse in the patient assigned to the low peak high FiO2 protocol, even though that patient is comparably hypoxemic to the other. So this is yet another limitation of the Berlin definition, 
when we're using measures like PF ratio to determine ARDS severity and really, I think, another area that can be targeted for optimization. Other limitations mentioned include the moderate to poor reliability of the chest radiographic criterion, as well as whether there should be a minimum time frame requirement for patients to meet criteria for ARDS before they can be formally diagnosed with it. Unfortunately, though, these authors fell short of establishing what this minimum time frame would be. Yeah, it appears as if, um, you know, we knew that there were some limitations that the, that the ARDS definition wasn't perfect, but um, the COVID pandemic sure, certainly took those limitations and shined a big old spotlight on them. And so it's good at least that we have, we have governing bodies and groups that are recognizing this and, you know, we're taking steps to it. You know, it might not be happening from an ESICM perspective, but, you know, it's like the, the clouds aligned and they knew, Steve, that we were recording this because um, in the Blue Journal, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, they released the new global definition of ARDS, right? And they hit on a lot of those pieces that you just talked about. So what commit, what, what recommendations did that committee make kind of because the ESICM, they, they, they talked about those limitations, but they didn't necessarily put out, Hey, here's what we think, but the kind of the, the global recommendations did. Yeah, definitely. That new global definition of ARDS, that's where we see those explicit revisions to that Berlin definition. And so specifically, the global definition recommended four things. Number one was to include patients on high flow nasal oxygen with a flow rate of 30 liters per minute or more. Number two was allowing for either a PF ratio of less than 300 or an SF ratio less than 315 if oxygen saturation is less than 97% to identify hypoxemia. Number three was that they felt bilateral opacities on chest x-ray should be retained, but ultrasound is an acceptable imaging modality now as well, particularly in resource-limited areas. And last but not least, in these resource-limited areas, there is no PEEP, oxygen flow rate, or specific respiratory device requirement. So some pretty big changes, like those would be big changes if, if that is like comparing that definition versus that Berlin criteria. For sure. So I even heard you kind of mention this in the beginning, ARDS phenotypes, right? And um, we, you, we've heard it in sepsis, COPD, and it's going to be, you know, a lot of what medicine is going towards. And as we talk about ARDS phenotypes, have to shout out fellow pharmacist Heather Torbick for her um, awesome publication, one of the Cleveland Clinic pharmacists in the Journal of Pharmacy Practice, looking at this exact thing of the phenotypes in ARDS. But what is a phenotype? And I guess... Following up with that is like, what is a classic example of an ARDS phenotype, just to kind of put it in context for us? Yeah, definitely. So this is a section that I'm particularly excited about because for the very first time, phenotyping has found its way into ARDS guidelines. And I really believe this can become the future of ARDS management and really the key to tailoring treatment strategies for these patients as we learn more and more about the ARDS subphenotypes down the road. So first, let's start with some semantics. Within the phenotyping domain of these guidelines, the guidelines define four terms, phenotype, subphenotype, subgroup, and endotype. A phenotype is defined as a clinically observable set of traits resulting from an interaction of genotype and environmental exposures. So ARDS would be the phenotype. Now, this is distinguished from a subphenotype, which is a distinct subgroup within that population, like ARDS, for example, that can be discriminated from others based on something observable or measurable. So we'll talk later on about different subphenotypes that have been identified within ARDS, like a hyperinflammatory subphenotype, a hypoinflammatory subphenotype. Again, this allows us to sort of sort through the vast heterogeneity within ARDS and sort of distinguish patients from one another. A subgroup 
is a subset of patients within a phenotype, which we define using cutoffs. So, for example, in the Berlin definition, we use the PF ratio to stratify severity, whether ARDS is mild, moderate, or severe. Those would represent different subgroups of patients. And then lastly, endotype is a subphenotype with a distinct pathobiological mechanism that theoretically would respond in a certain way to some sort of targeted therapy. The bottom line to all of this is that ARDS is a very heterogeneous disease state, and phenotyping is what allows us to discern the differences from one ARDS patient to the next. So, Steve, what are some classic examples of, of phenotypes as this, as, as this phrase and this term is going to become more and more common in medicine? Yeah, so most of the research which has been done so far in the field of ARDS on this has really been able to hone in on a hyperinflammatory and a hypoinflammatory ARDS subphenotype. In the guidelines, the authors reference a secondary analysis of two very well-known ARDS trials, the ARMA trial and the, and the alveoli trial, which sought to identify subphenotypes within ARDS. And ultimately, the authors discovered that hyperinflammatory subphenotype exhibiting higher plasma concentrations of inflammatory biomarkers such as interleukin-6 and interleukin-8. And what's very interesting is that significant differences were observed with different treatment strategies when patients were analyzed based on their subphenotype. So in the alveoli trial, for example, whether ARDS patients were managed with higher PEEP or a lower PEEP strategy did not translate into any significant differences in mortality or ventilator-free days. However, in the secondary analysis of this trial, when these patients were analyzed based on their subphenotype, significant differences were seen. Specifically, patients with a hyperinflammatory subphenotype benefited more from a high PEEP versus low PEEP strategy compared to those with a hypoinflammatory subphenotype who are more likely to benefit from low PEEP versus high PEEP. And these differences were observed in outcomes which are very clinically meaningful, such as 90-day mortality, ventilator-free days, and organ failure-free days. The same authors also went on to do a secondary analysis of the landmark FACT trial, which investigated whether a liberal versus conservative fluid management strategy was more beneficial in ARDS patients. And so you remember the primary outcome of the FACT trial was 60-day mortality, and no significant difference was seen in this outcome between the liberal and conservative fluid groups. But once again, a significant difference was able to be seen in the secondary analysis when patients were reanalyzed based on their subphenotype. And specifically, the hyperinflammatory subphenotype experienced a mortality benefit when managed with a conservative fluid management strategy whereas that hypoinflammatory phenotype, subphenotype rather, was the opposite and experienced a mortality benefit when managed with the liberal fluid management strategy. So the significance of these subphenotypes is really very apparent, and these secondary analyses certainly illustrate the potential benefits in tailoring treatment strategies for ARDS patients based on their subphenotypes. And so it really sounds like we've been looking at these in the research world for some time in the ARDS space, and now, right, they're getting guideline recommendations with treatments and things. So this is certainly coming to the, to the main stage here, it appears. Correct, correct. So how does this phenotype change over the course of ARDS, knowing how the pathophysiology of ARDS can, can change pretty drastically throughout someone's course? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I'm not sure that we have a great answer for yet. As you mentioned, we know the pathophysiology of ARDS is very dynamic as we progress from the exudative to the proliferative and ultimately the fibrotic phases. So it is conceivable that levels of some of these inflammatory biomarkers could fluctuate as we go from one phase to the next. Um, unfortunately, again, it's something that uh, I don't believe we have a great answer for at this time, but certainly a very plausible question. So 
what is, I think I know, but I don't want to assume, what's our ultimate goal with phenotypes and subphenotypes? And as these, as we're seeing more and more of these, do we have like the resources and things like, is this ready for prime time? Like, do you think we have the, do, do you think that we are here and ready for, for phenotypes in prime time for ARDS treatment? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I think the ultimate goal would be for us to use these subphenotypes to tailor our treatment strategies for ARDS patients, right? Because we know that ARDS is a very heterogeneous disease state. And so subphenotypes are what allow us to tease out a lot of that heterogeneity from one patient to the next. So, for example, based on the secondary analyses we just discussed, we would know, for example, to use high PEEP and a conservative fluid management strategy if we knew that our patient had the hyperinflammatory subphenotype. As I said, though, you know, as exciting as it sounds, it's really not ready for prime time yet, um, at least in most institutions. You know, keep in mind the biomarkers that have been looked at thus far are IL-6, IL-8. They're biomarkers which many institutions won't be able to quantify on site and would likely need to send out. So, really until we can routinely measure these biomarkers and achieve a rapid turnaround time, it's unlikely that they're really going to be able to significantly influence patient care. But I, you know, the playing both sides, I think we saw in COVID, there are centers that were ordering some of these interleukin levels and some of these, you know, tumor necrosis factor levels and things. And so, you know, maybe not everywhere, but I think we've shown that it may be possible. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And certainly that I think, again, is um, perhaps we may be on the cusp of and maybe a wave of the future. So we'd be remiss not to give just a a brief, brief highlight of because throughout the document, they talk about lung protective ventilation strategy. And if you're talking, you know, if you're I'm picturing being on bedside rounds, right, with an ARDS patient and on the respiratory section, you know, if you're at an academic spot, right. The attendings going through all the lung protective stuff. So when they when they say that, Steve, what parameters are they referencing? Are there like a big, you know, there are a big few that are kind of highlights when we think of lung protective ventilation strategy, we should think of XYZ, et cetera. Yeah, the idea of this is that the lungs in patients with ARDS are already damaged and if not managed properly, the ventilator has the potential to damage them even more via ventilator-induced lung injury. So the idea of lung protective ventilation is to limit the potential for ventilator-induced lung injury by using specific things like low tidal volume. So typically this is 6 mLs per kilogram of ideal body weight with the goal here of achieving lower plateau pressures. So this in concert with appropriate levels of PEEP really all helps to minimize further damage to the lungs that can be caused by the ventilator itself. And one of the other big pharmacologic interventions, um, you know, you think of landmark, you know, mortality reducing RCTs in critical care and prone positioning, specifically the Perceva trials, one of those that comes to mind. So with, with COVID, with all the, the respiratory, um, issues in the pandemic, has the role of prone positioning in ARDS changed? Uh, Yes and no. In ARDS specifically, the recommendation remains the same, and it's still to utilize prone positioning in ARDS patients with a PF ratio less than 150 based on the results of the Proceva trial. And we do this because doing so has been shown to significantly improve mortality in these patients compared to leaving them supine. I think it's interesting you brought up the COVID-19 pandemic because one of the practices that really caught on during this pandemic was this practice of self-proning in these patients who were not yet intubated and therefore not yet in ARDS territory with the goal of preventing them from becoming intubated, preventing them from becoming increasingly hypoxemic. So from that standpoint, yeah, that's uh, the, the self-proning is sort of caught on, but specific to ARDS, it's still being done the same as it has been since uh, the Proceva trial was published. So I, I led in the intro um, of, 
you know, I, I invited you on because of, of I found all of your kind of editorials and papers talking about corticosteroids, specifically in ARDS. Um, interesting. I learned a lot. You clearly knew a lot. So when you looked through the 2023 ESICM, ESICM guidelines, why do the guidelines not address corticosteroids at all? What were your thoughts when you controlled F and only saw one the word steroid once, and it was a reference throughout the entire document? <laughs> Great question. Um, you know, to be fair, the author said the scope of the guideline was limited to non-pharmacologic respiratory support strategies. But that being said, neuromuscular blocking agents are discussed and have their own domain. So if we're giving neuromuscular blockers a domain, I really think we should be giving corticosteroids their time of day as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and I want to point the listeners um, to, to two of Steve's um, kind of discussions on this in AJHP and uh, the other in Lancet kind of respiratory talking about these things. And so this is probably the most loaded question, but when we think of corticosteroids in ARDS, understanding all the different, you know, reasons ARDS occurs, direct, indirect, you know, um, et cetera, do we know the most appropriate corticosteroid agent, dose, or duration? Or do we even know any of them? That, I would say, is the million-dollar question. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, going back, decades, methylprednisolone has been the most studied corticosteroid in this patient population. And that's mainly because of a pharmacokinetic study published back in 1991 showing that methylprednisolone achieves higher concentrations in the lungs compared to prednisolone. But interestingly, in the last three years or so, dexamethasone has really come onto the scene. There was the DEXA ARDS trial showing a mortality benefit when dexamethasone was used in moderate and severe ARDS. And then obviously the recovery trial after that where dexamethasone demonstrated a mortality benefit in patients with COVID-19 specifically requiring respiratory support and quickly became the standard of care for these patients. So it's really either methylprednisolone or dexamethasone based on what we know. Now, Dexamethasone does have some theoretical advantages, in my opinion, over methylprednisolone. Dexamethasone is more selectively glucocorticoid with less mineralocorticoid activity than methylprednisolone. And that's important because mineralocorticoid effects lead to fluid retention and could theoretically worsen pulmonary edema in these patients. So from that standpoint, dexamethasone may be preferable. Another potential benefit of dexamethasone over methylprednisolone is that for dexamethasone, you probably don't need to taper because of its long biological half-life, which could be up to as long as 54 hours. So it's really going to taper on its own once you stop administering it and eliminates the need for these prolonged tapers that we typically see utilized with methylprednisolone. So as somebody who's pretty familiar with, with research and going through some of it, what would you say are the challenges when, you know, when looking into this, for example, say someone created a, you know, published a systematic review and meta-analysis you know, today of corticosteroids and ARDS, right? Pooling together all the research that we have. Um, what are the challenges of interpreting the pooled trial data now that we know how individually different ARDS could be from patient to patient? Yeah, I think you just touched upon it, the heterogeneity for sure, you know, not just in the design of the trials that comprise these meta-analyses, but also the heterogeneity among ARDS patients as well. Um, what's interesting is when you review the literature, you find quite a range in dosing regimens, particularly for methylprednisolone. For methylprednisolone, You'll find everything from one milligram per kilogram per day all the way up to 120 milligrams per kilogram per day and durations ranging all the way from one day to 32 days. So the differences from one trial to another and the regimens utilized are vast. 
Interestingly, the guidelines for the diagnosis and management of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency published back in 2017 do offer more precise dosing recommendations for methylprednisolone and ARDS, but nevertheless, we are still seeing a lot of variability in dosing and clinical practice. And unfortunately, these guidelines don't comment on the utility of dexamethasone in ARDS because these guidelines predated studies like DEXA-ARDS and the recovery trial that really began to shed light on the benefits of dexamethasone in ARDS patients. Which seems to me so weird why they didn't even address it. Not that they hadn't give a recommendation, but the fact that it's that it's just out there. Because the other thing, like, like my follow from that would be, you know, they're talking about phenotypes. Like, what are the impact of phenotypes on steroid treatments, right? Like, what are the, what's the potential impact if we're able to know if someone is hypo or hyper-inflammatory when we're treating them in the moment? That's another great question, and one that, unfortunately, we don't have the data to answer. You know, we spoke earlier about the secondary analyses of the alveoli, the ARMA, and the FACT trials that really sort of showed us, okay, you know, in this particular subphenotype, use high PEEP, use conservative fluid management. In my opinion, it's now time to start doing this with corticosteroids in ARDS, and it's time to start thinking about secondary analyses of some of these trials that have investigated corticosteroids in ARDS to see what influence, if any, that the hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory subphenotypes will play on the responsiveness to corticosteroids in these patients. So in your opinion, because I don't think, right, if you knew, knew, I think you'd be, that'd be the multi-million dollar question. But why, why is there such impressive findings with corticosteroid treatment, specifically with COVID-19 ARDS, when that doesn't, that hasn't necessarily been seen in the more heterogeneous ARDS population? Possibly because by honing in on COVID-19 ARDS specifically, these investigators were able to eliminate a lot of the heterogeneity that we see from one ARDS patient to the next. The cause of ARDS is very important, and whether patients experience direct versus indirect ARDS, for example, can influence what these patients experience pathophysiologically. So really by limiting our scope to patients with ARDS induced by one thing specifically, perhaps these investigators were able to achieve more precise and clear results. So I'll never forget, I was interviewing for my uh, critical care PGY2 residency at Emory and uh, Dr. Craig Coopersmith, who if you're familiar with critical care world, right, ex-president, very, very involved with sepsis treatment and all of these types of things, he asked me in my interview point blank, all right, if you had a million dollars, how would you design your ultimate steroids and ARDS trial? So, Steve, I'm going to give you chance, uh, you a chance to answer much more eloquently than PGY1 Nick did, and how would you design the ultimate steroid and ARDS trial. And let's say that money is not a factor, right? You have, you have all the resources that you could want. Well, as I mentioned, I think it's important to ensure that the cause of ARDS is consistent among all trial participants as best as possible in order to minimize the heterogeneity. So it's a very good thing you said money is no object because what that really translates to, I think, is several different trials where we look at, okay, ARDS from COVID-19, ARDS from sepsis, ARDS from pancreatitis. So I'm going to need to do several trials to give you my perfect answer to this question. I also think it's time that we compare dexamethasone and methylprednisolone head-to-head in these patients. You know, we have an abundance of data for both steroids, and we're actually now beginning to see these head-to-head studies comparing the two and severe COVID-19 specifically, which so far have yielded conflicting results. So the jury is still out on whether one is superior to the other. So I think continuing to investigate whether one is superior in COVID-19 ARDS, as well as various causes of non-COVID-19 ARDS are big questions 
that have yet to be answered and I think really would need to be the focus of trials in the future. And I think the big thing that you hint on there is is that needs to be a randomized trial. We can't we can't be pooling five years of data comparing methylpred and dexamethasone, right? I don't you know, it'd be hard to know what to do with those results. So like you said, you know, making sure we, we have this in some randomized controlled format to truly see. I agree. That's what I want to know. I would like to know if there's if there's one agent we should be using over another. I feel like dexamethasone for the severe ones tend to be what I go towards, especially like you you had mentioned at the beginning, some of those benefits. Um, but I don't think we know, know that that's ultimate number one. Right. Correct. And it's only when we get that randomized controlled trial data, I think we're, we'll be able to confidently say one way or the other. Now let's kind of talk about the pharmacotherapy that is mentioned in these guidelines, and that's specifically our neuromuscular blockers. So in the whole of ARDS population, should we be using neuromuscular blockers if there isn't evidence of ventilator dyssynchrony? And I ask because I think a lot of us who have been practicing for a while that remember the Acurisis trial and things, if you're in severe, severe ARDS, you got, you got the paralytic, right, from the results of that trial. So where do we stand on empiric versus waiting for that dyssynchrony? I would say no. Um, since the results of the ROSE trial really debunked what Acurisis yeah. taught us, where Rose showed that cisatricurium led to no improvement in 90-day mortality compared to usual care. We've really moved away from routine use of continuous infusions of neuromuscular blocking agents in ARDS patients just because their PF ratio is less than 150. And I think it's also important to recognize that there are risks associated with neuromuscular blockade, such as neuromuscular weakness, the need for deep sedation in these patients. So, Certainly, it's not something that's without risk, and the most recent data shows us really not beneficial the way it used to be done. So I would say, you know, certainly gone are the days of routine use of continuous infusions of these agents when PF is less than 150. And so when we're using neuromuscular blockers, how should we be administering them? Ideally, on a PRN basis, I would say in those instances of ventilator dyssynchrony, um, and again, this I, I think we're we're very justified in this based on the, yep. the more recent Rose trial that debunked Acurisis. So, the, the interesting thing, and they kind of slipped this in there, they recommend the use of neuromuscular blockade for those at risk of pneumothorax development. And if you go, and we'll... I'll, I'll highlight this beautiful supplementary appendix a little bit later, but they slip it in. And when you see this force plot, it, it certainly favors um, neuromuscular blockade. But I guess my question is, isn't ARDS or specifically severe ARDS a risk factor for pneumothorax development, right? When you're having that increased ventilator support. So does that mean we should be giving this to everybody? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Perhaps some more than others, you know, I, I think specifically, you know, we talk about positive end expiratory pressure, for example, um, as being something where if we're using high amounts of PEEP, that's going to potentially predispose patients to developing a pneumothorax, which you would expect patients with severe ARDS to be receiving high amounts of PEEP, right? So, yeah, I, th I think you bring up a good point there. So maybe for those really severe patients who you might see that peep of 12, maybe, right? Because guidelines, we think of it works for 80 to 90% of patients, right? And then sometimes you have those that are outliers. And so maybe there are people you'll consider, but for the majority, we're only thinking of those at like the severest of the severe. And that's kind of a perfect lead in into what we're into the next thing, right? We're talking about severe, severe management, band-aid therapy. So pulmonary vasodilators. So when we're thinking of, where in therapy um, of ARDS management, um, where does pulmonary vasodilators place land? Yeah, these agents are really there to serve as adjuncts to improve oxygenation in these cases of severe ARDS. So once we're already doing the measures that we know improve mortality in these patients, like low tidal volume ventilation, prone positioning, 
things like that, and the patient is still very hypoxemic, that's when we're going to consider agents like pulmonary vasodilators to improve oxygenation in these patients. So it's that rescue therapy when we're trying to let all that other stuff work and we don't want somebody satting in the 70s in front of us forever while that's happening, right? Like it's a, all right, let's try to try to let the other things work. So our two biggest agents or the most common agents that we'll see pulmonary vasodilator wise um, are inhaled nitric oxide and epoprostenol. So what are... Let's start because there's kind of two two things to think about from this perspective. And let's first talk with clinical considerations. So thinking just clinically, efficacy and safety-wise, what are some differences between those agents um, and things to consider from like a adverse effect perspective? Yeah, so in terms of efficacy, the data suggests that both lead to comparable improvements in oxygenation. Um, from a safety standpoint, they each have their unique safety concerns. So, for example, there's the concern for methemoglobinemia from inhaled nitric oxide, and there are some concerns for systemic hypotension that can be induced by inhaled epoprostenol. By and large, though, both agents are, are very safe and tend to have a very limited adverse effect profile. And then, right, from a pharmacist perspective, what are logistical considerations? Because I think that will typically maybe choose why you have one agent as your preferred over another. Because like you said, clinically, plus or minus, they're going to be about the same efficacious and safety wise. Yeah, what's interesting is cost, I think, tends to be the the biggest difference between the two and a lot of what drives what's available at your institution. And so, you know, if you go through the literature, you can see many publications where institutions are able to achieve significant cost savings simply by switching from inhaled nitric oxide to inhaled epoprostenol as their pulmonary vasodilator of choice. So a lot of institutions have made this switch as a cost savings measure, but Nevertheless, inhaled nitric oxide is still around. Um, where I practice, we actually have both available. So, um, you know, inhaled nitric oxide certainly hasn't been phased out, and it's important for us to still be experts about it. But nevertheless, you could potentially achieve some cost savings by preferencing inhaled epoprostenol. Yeah, maybe less from our PULM colleagues, but I know our CT surgery colleagues still very much love uh, the nitric oxide compared to the um, uh, epoprostenol, those prostacyclines where the, that theoretical thrombocytopenia and bleeding risk. Um, but that's a good, you'll see when you, when you, if you were to look in the like PubMed or things and you look for studies, I think you did a good job of highlighting that more or less a lot of it's the same and it's logistical considerations at your institution and what your providers and teams want. That's going to be a lot of the driving force between those different things. Um, and as we go, as we kind of finish, right, we've kind of started from for more of the beginning and we're kind of increasing in severity, right? We go from steroids, neuromuscular blockers, pulmonary vasodilators. So now we're kind of at the last, last stage, which is the extracorporeal life support. And basically, in layman's terms, VV ECMO, right? Venovenous ECMO. We are bypassing your lungs, let them heal to oxygenate the rest of your body. And my question is, after the COVID-19 pandemic, right, where um, we saw a lot of ECMO, has the role of VV ECMO and ARDS changed after our experiences with the pandemic? I would say the COVID-19 era specifically has not changed the role of VV ECMO in ARDS. And these guidelines recommend that patients with severe ARDS both from COVID-19 and not from COVID-19, essentially be treated with ECMO the same way, using the criteria established in the landmark ECMO to rescue lung injury and severe ARDS trial. So um, much the same as how we've been utilizing VV ECMO pre-COVID-19 that we're employing it in patients with COVID-19 as well. Okay. Well, you know, COVID has cha- COVID seems to have changed so much. I wanted to be sure that we didn't need to know new things 
in the realm of of ECMO as well. Um, so that kind of hit on a decent amount of the guideline recommendations in those domains. And I mean, they, they talked about a few other things, but for, for the purposes of, of our discussion, those hit on a lot of those big um, things, those big, you know, domains. Now, what I want to talk about here, we have some guideline fun facts, right? I always love this. I think there are some very, very fun things. So the supplementary appendix in this EICM guidelines they have a 307-page Word document, 307 pages. It's one of those that, like, you try to email it, and it's like, oh, actually, you can't email this as a file. You have to email it as a link. Like, it's one of those documents. Um, and what I like about this, what I'm highlighting about it is it has a breakdown of the votes for all of the guideline recommendations, right? So it is true transparency. And for all of their recommendations, they needed 80% agreement for them to have an actual recommendation. And it's an interesting breakdown. You can see kind of who voted for what, um, and you can kind of see how the group, you know, agreed or didn't agree, but knowing that for it to make the document, four out of five people had to say yes or agree with it. So something to keep in mind. Now, another very, very cool thing um, for learners and and uh, and all of those who are lifelong learners, um, they have a color-coded breakdown of the trials that they analyzed. Example, they have a a a document on the neuromuscular blocker trials. Now you have to zoom in like two to three hundred percent to see, but it is a beautiful breakdown with tables inclusion exclusion criteria of a lot of these landmark trials so if you're preparing for that ARDS talk if you're wanting to get your your zip drive in line this is a very very good place to start these guidelines are certainly a treasure trove of information here so as we've kind of reviewed the 2023 ESICM guidelines that replaced our 2017 guidelines so we have about six of seven years of data What's the future of ARDS research and management kind of from your perspective, from the perspective of a, of a pharmacist involved in the care of the critically ill? It's really going to be sorting through that vast amount of heterogeneity from one ARDS patient to the next that we discussed today with the goal of being able to personalize our treatment strategies. And for us as pharmacists, really personalizing a lot of our pharmacologic treatment strategies like corticosteroids, for example. And I think the sub-phenotypes that we talked about today are really going to be a big part of that. So keep your eyes out for more of these secondary analyses and other studies that are stratifying ARDS patients into different cohorts based on different biomarker profiles. I really think this is going to be the key to eliminating a lot of the heterogeneity that we see within this patient population. Well, Steve, what a, what an awesome job, not only going through these updated guidelines, but really giving us a review kind of where are we now with the, with the management identification, treatment, et cetera, of ARDS. Um, Let's end with this. What are, what are some of the biggest kind of take home points the billboard signs that you want to make sure if people remember anything from our talk, they remember these things. Yeah. So these guidelines that we talked about today from the European society of intensive care medicine, as well as the new global definition that we spoke about briefly, that was just published in the American journal of respiratory and critical care medicine. Really their goal was to broaden the ARDS diagnostic criteria such that patients on therapies, which have, really taken off in recent years, like high-flow nasal oxygen, can now also be diagnosed with ARDS. I think that's certainly one of the big take-home points now as we're looking to expand beyond our traditionally used Berlin definition. Um, I think it's also important to remember that studies of corticosteroids in ARDS, which have been done to date, are plagued with a vast amount of heterogeneity and uncertainty really regarding what the optimal corticosteroid is, what dose to give, and for how long to give it. 
So now is the time to answer these questions. And head-to-head studies that I briefly mentioned about uh, dexamethasone versus methylprednisolone and ARDS from COVID-19 specifically are certainly a good start, but they're just the beginning. And so more studies like this directly comparing methylprednisolone and dexamethasone in specific populations within the ARDS umbrella, I think are going to be very instrumental. And lastly, I would say subphenotypes are really going to be the key to individualizing treatment strategies for ARDS patients going forward, given how heterogeneous of a disease state ARDS really is. Thus far, the secondary analyses of landmark trials have really shown exciting results in the hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory ARDS subphenotypes like we discussed, but more research is certainly going to be needed before we can really realize the full potential that this might hold. Well, Steve, I appreciate you so much for coming on for your, your, um, time, effort, energy reminder, friends of the pod, you can find Steve on Twitter at Lemieux farm D, uh, Steve, I appreciate it. And I will be reaching out if I ever get that white clam pizza that is not from Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let me know what you think. (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks again to Steve for joining me. A reminder to reach out. Let me know what you think. Uh, at Pharmacy to Dose on social media, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list with the articles we discussed today, it's in that podcast episode description as well as at pharmacy to dose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care parent disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.